0: Welcome to The Soul Connection, an exploration of the interconnectivity between our social influencers, physical and emotional well-being, with a spark of spirituality. Please welcome your host, The Soul Doctor, Dr. Christiane Lefferts, known as Dr. K. Welcome to The Soul Connection. This is a fantastic, exciting episode we have in store for you today. Again, we want to give a big shout out to our listeners all over the world. We are currently being tuned into about 48 countries, and so from around the world, from Tampa, Florida, today we give a big hello and a hearty blessing to everybody that is tuning in. We also want to mention Michael and Dell's group, My Pillow. Use promo code S O U L Soul and receive 66% off of your bed, and pillow needs, and I'm telling you, they have top-rate, top-notch, top-quality products. You won't be disappointed. So today, I want to introduce to you a fascinating man, Eric Madsen. He is the founder of Team Law and author of a book that is set to come out called Fake Two, and his expertise is in law, yet he is not a lawyer. So I'm assuming you have a great deal of years that you put forward. I know you have been just a plethora of information when we have connected and spoke. And I thought, wow, you know, the the type of information, you know, the average American really doesn't know or understand.
1: Right.
0: And so this is, I guarantee you, this is going to be a very fascinating exchange for the average American listener that has no idea of our history, um, yet just about everybody is operating under social security numbers, we're doing business with corporate numbers, and we're all part of a system that we really don't understand,
1: correct? Yeah. Yeah, the, uh, the concept that we live in today, we call it the prevailing mythology. And it's the concept that you are a social security card holder, and that's impossible. But when I say that's impossible, most people think, well, I have a card. <laughs> I have, right. a I have I, you know, and, and when they look at the card, they see a name on the face of the card, and they think that's their name. And they, they see a number on that face of that card, and so they think that's their number. But if, if you look at the card itself, it says, this card belongs to the Social Security Administration, and you must return it if we ask for it. So... <laughs> <laughs> okay, it, it says it says right. This is an image of the back of their card. And then the very next line says, if you find a card that isn't yours, please return it to and then it gives you address to send the card back to it. So the bottom line throughout the history of the Social Security system, the Social Security card has been the property of the Social Security administration. They own it. And they have never issued a Social Security card to any man, woman or child in the history of of, the Social Care Administration. So we look on the front of the card and it has a a name and a number. And if we go into the law and the regulations where um, the Social Care Administration is controlled in how that's generated, they take a form SS-5 and they take information from that form. And then when you look in the law, it says they create the name and number, okay? They create it. And they use that name and number that they create as index fields in the 6058 record, which is abbreviated name for the the social security death index record. And so when they enter that in there, they say they register that in that database. And then you look up the definition of register in that part of the code, and it says to record the ownership of. Mm Number one, they created the name. They created the number. Mm -hmm. They registered that name and number combination as well, the name and number as index fields in that database. And then from that database, they print the name and number on the face of the card. So now from the law, we see that the name and number belong to them. From the card and the law, we see. Card belongs to them. It's not your card. It's not your name. It's not your number. Matter of fact, Congress says they created that name and number combination to uniquely distinguish the card holder from any people of the same or of a similar name. So, right off the bat, we have this belief system that has been promulgated by the United States government that it is your social security card, is your social security name, and is your social security number. When in fact, in law, in history, in fact, it's not your name, it's not your number, and it's not your card, <laughs> okay? So what happens is they take that card and they mail that out to the address mm-hmm. that they got from, the, from that um, SS5 form. And when they mail it out to that address, they're mailing it out to the name and number on the card. And when you get it, it comes in an envelope and you open it up and it's attached to other, it's a punch out card, it's attached to other mm-hmm. things, mm-hmm. has other instructions on the card. And then mm-hmm. when you take this card out, it, it instructs you right there, if this isn't your card, send it back. Mm-hmm. It tells you right before that, it's not your card. <laughs> so if you keep the card, then that can't be you that's keeping the card. Because there's only two ways you can hold that card. One's lawful, and one's unlawful. The lawful way is if they entrusted it with a trust. The unlawful way is if you think it's, if you're holding it like it's your card, then that would be you're a thief. A th- uh, um, yeah, a thief. We hear all the time people saying possession is nine-tenths of the law. Well, that that is law, but that's called the law of theft. And the way it works is if you're in possession of stolen property, you're the thief. Nine, nine tenths of the law says if you have stolen property, you're the thief. So if you have that card and in an unlawful way, then you would be a thief holding their card. They sent it out to the address and the name and number. And entrusted it. Now, what that means is they created a trust and they send this card out. And what they're offering when this comes in the mail is would you be willing to serve in the capacity with this trust as trustee? So that gives you the ability to manage and control the business known as the Social Security card holder, which is a United States government agency trust. It's not you. So if you're willing to do that, then as trustee, you control the card. And you 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 take it and and put it wherever you're gonna put it and and do what you're gonna do with it. Now they suggest that you put it in a safety deposit box. So one of the questions that I ask people once they understand this and, and and trust law is something that's been around since long before the United States of America trusts have been around so if if I have this card and I put it in my hand okay I have this card and it's not my card it's held in trust whose hand is it that's the question
0: that is the question
1: if the card is held in trust and the card is held in this hand whose hand is holding the card? We would be the government's. and you the would trust's hand, system. that's right. So what happens is you, you loan consciousness and physical capacity to the trust's office trustee. Because whenever you create, you hear people talking about businesses and they talk about fictitious businesses. And in the patriot world and whatnot, they get this all goofed up because they, they talk about businesses like all businesses are, are fake. They're, they're not real. But that's not right. When you've got a, a corporation, that's a real business. You've got a business, you got a trust. It's a real business. They get the trust indenture, the the, the the documents that create this thing. It's a real person. However, it was created in paper. So In its construct, it's required to have consciousness and physical capacity to do the things it was contracted to do. So where does it get that? Well, it borrows it from someone else. So it brings in officials that serve in office. So in the trust, the the official that controls the trust is a trustee and and a corporation that might might be a CEO. You're talking about the finances, it's probably the comptroller. You know, you have different positions that have different responsibilities, and those responsibilities are going to dictate how things are are done, and that's all written in contract, okay? So in order to put actual consciousness and physical capacity into the contract, you take people who have consciousness and physical capacity, and you put that into the contract, and now you have the officer that is the trustee. And um, or the CEO, or the governor, or the president, or whatever it is that you're dealing with. So, so these entities, we deal with them all the time. We just never think of the cardholder as being something other than ourselves because everything around us that's published by government about the cardholder is as if it were you, not a business entity, when in reality, it's not just a United States government trust, it's a United States government agency trust. It's an agency because they reserved the right to terminate the trust. Only they can terminate that trust. So that makes it an agency of them. And Congress reserves the right to adjust things like FICA and SICA, which are the, the rules as to how funds are distributed from the trust to the beneficiary, the United States government. So the United States government is the beneficiary of the trust because they're the owner of the card. So if we take that and and we we look at that just for a moment and you think about it, I remember um, back when I was young um, getting a job and they wanted a social security number. Correct. And I didn't have one. So um, I didn't have one. And I didn't want one. So I didn't get one. And I found out you could work without it. Okay. I just didn't have one. So others that I knew were getting these relationships with Social Security Administration. Mm-hmm. And they thought that they got a Social Security number and they thought it was their number. Of course, in law and in fact, in history, it's not. But they then take that trust And a contract for employment so who's getting the job you or the trust the trust is okay so when the services that were required in that contract are performed then who gets paid you or the trust the trust gets paid the trust does so when you take the paycheck you go down and open up a bank account who opens the bank account you or the trust
0: well as a trustee you sign the paperwork for the trust.
1: That's right. So it's the trust that's opening the bank account.
0: Correct.
1: So the funds that are held in the bank account are funds held in the bank account in trust for the United States government, the beneficiary of the trust.
0: Now so you then, probably just blew a lot of people's minds right there. Right. Sorry about that. Now we look at it a little <laughs> bit
1: further. People wonder why banks have so much control. Yeah. So now we take it one more step. You decide you want to buy a house. Who buys the house, you or the trust?
0: Well, the trust would. Trust does. Because, yes.
1: Sometimes we find people, they say, well, no, we paid for we paid cash. And I say, okay, so where'd you get the cash? Well, we took it out of the bank account. Okay, so whose funds were you took out of the bank account? The trusts. So whose cash was it? The trusts so who bought the house the trust
0: okay who bought the car Because if it's in your name in title it's not not your name it's not your name that's what people that's why i'm saying you're blowing
1: people's minds right now the name and number on the card is almost always printed in all capital letters and people make a big fuss about that but it's a title it's a it's a business entity it's 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 an um the the uh, printer they're using actually just prints in in uh, though i have seen cards where it was in proper noun format most of them are in all capital letters Mm -hmm. and it's 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 just a font selection there's no real critical element to that but you look at that and let's say you open up the uh, telephone book to john smith or Gene Smith, or some name like that. And how many Gene Smiths or John Smiths are there? There's tons of them. Okay, so again, we go back to Congress and social media both say that they created the name and number combination to uniquely distinguish the cardholder from any people of the same or of a similar name. Mm-hmm. So if, if your name is the same um, alphabetically as that name, that doesn't mean that's your name. It's, it's not your name because it has that number with it. So anytime that name and number are used, it's the trust that's being used. And you're the one that's in control. So what happens because of that is people forget who they are. Hmm. See, we were born of parents and our parents were born of parents and you can track that back to God. OK, so we are literally descendant, inherent heirs of our creator, God. That's who we are. Who is the cardholder, social security cardholder? Well, that's a business entity that was created by the United States government. Now we go back and we look at the Constitution and you were saying, you know, um, something about people knowing their history and and and. Um, knowing our history and knowing who we are from our history and i remember when i went to school i learned some things in history and some of the things that i learned about history were accurate and some of the things i learned about history were way off like for example they used to talk about this thing that they called the revolutionary war i remember back in in 2019 when they had all these riots and things going on around the country and they People are talking about how our nation was a nation that was born out of revolution. And I say, where? Show me the revolution. You know, they talk about this thing that that they call the revolutionary war. And I say, okay, um, show me where in the United States of America, there was ever a revolutionary war. And there never was, there was never a revolution. Now, when I say that, again, a lot of people think like they did with the Social Security card. I have a Social Security card, so that can't be true. But when we look at the facts and the history and the law, we find out, in fact, in the history of the nation, no man, woman or child has ever been issued a Social Security name, number or card. So we go back and we look at this thing that they call the Revolutionary War. And if we go back and look at the people who came over from the Mayflower, um they they were mostly puritans who had left great britain had gone over to holland because of um seeking religious freedom Mm -hmm. Uh, they had the king james bible out and the church of england and it was uh, a very powerfully political controlled thing and if you weren't of the church of england and it was hard to get along so they moved to holland for for uh religious freedom and they lived there a while and did quite well and the dutch really liked them because they're very industrious people okay meanwhile the king of england had landed ships in the united states what is now the united states in the americas and he was attempting to colonize the americas the most successful colony of the british in the united states was jamestown Correct. And in Jamestown, v- virtually every three years, everybody died. Nobody lived in Jamestown longer than about three years. Everybody that was sent there died within three years, either from famine or for, from um, disease or from the Native Americans or from just terrible weather or whatever. But, but they, they just they weren't surviving. So the king wants to capitalize on this new land, but the colonization efforts had failed miserably. So he came up with a different plan. One of the things that happened happening because everybody was dying is when they send someone and say you're going to be assigned to going to the Americas, it was all, you know military guys, and so you're going to send them over to be in the Americas. That was a death sentence. So they jump ship and go to France or someplace else to get away from having this descents. So the king had to come up with something. So he came up with this thing that the people called the, the king's folly. But what it was, was the king decided that he would give up free title to land. Now, the thing that makes a king a king is the king owns all of the land within the domain so to form a kingdom all you do is you take the land ownership and you give it to to the king and now you're subjects to the king because you're living on his land now you might own the private property where you live but the land itself belongs to the king so you're subject to the king so that's where the subjugation comes in so the king is doing something very outlandish for kings he's he's going to give away title to land now as he's doing this he's going to give them not just the land but the property of to the land and the right of self-government so when the puritans hear about this up in holland they go you know the only place we're really going to get true religious freedom is when we're living on our own land with the right of self-government. So we've got to go back to England and do this. So they left Holland, came back to England and negotiated the terms for coming to the Americas for seven years before they got the deal the way they they wanted it. And what the deal was, the King gave them the land outright free, no cost. And he gives them the land and he says, okay, um, you can have the land free and clear But you're going to have to pay for your passage and to pay for your passage. um, They they didn't have the money to pay for the passage. So he says, so to pay for their passage, what you're going to need to do, you're going to you're going to need to give the king 50 percent of your production from the land for seven years. So they agreed. They come over on the ships. They land. They start setting up camp and, and living here and they live for seven years and pay their passage off. And at the end of that seven years, they formed a constitution. And to this day, because of the formation of that constitution in Connecticut, Hartford, Connecticut was where it was formed, uh, they call Connecticut the constitution state. Now, not only did they form that in Hartford, Connecticut, but there were three other cities in three other states right there together. They formed a constitution between the three nation states. And they called that the United States Constitution. Okay. Mm-hmm. so that was the first constitution of the United States of America it was formed seven years after the Mayflower landed and the constitutional state Connecticut the first state was now established and they moved forward meanwhile during that seven years while they' were paying for their passage they didn't have any money they had to live off of the 50 percent they got to keep and anything they needed to buy like tin or or sugar or paper or things like that there was seven primary commodities they had to buy they had to buy them from england and they didn't have any money so they borrowed money from the king so as this nation starts off we've got the american peoples who have immigrated from europe and they've been established with what land ownership Mm -hmm. they own the property pertinent land they own their land and the property in what's called a lodial title, meaning beholding to no one else, and they have the right of self-government, okay? Mm-hmm. So we go a long time, and England is almost always at war with France. And so the French see how much growth and profitability is coming to England from the massive growth that's happening here in the Americas. And they're a little jealous of that. They want to stop that. So they come in down at New Orleans and set up camp down there. And they also come in in the north in, up in Canada mm-hmm. and they influence the Native American Indians up there to go to war with the people in New England. So they have the French and Indian War. So here comes Great Britain into the French and Indian War. And they say to the Americans, hey, look, you're fighting France, and France is our enemy. Um, would you let us come and help you fight the French there? And they said, sure. So now notice, they don't really even have a treaty. It's just, would you let us come and fight with you? So they came. Now, they, we won and quashed the, the war and stop the connection of France from Canada and New Orleans to block off the westward expansion. And so that's the setting. And after the war was over, most of the troops left, but England maintained the big base in Boston under General Gage. So here's this fort up in Boston. And because of the problems that they had with the English and the English had with them, uh, they would confiscate the weapons and whatnot of the people and house troops with people and all kinds of things, as we remember from the history. And this caused a lot of friction. And they acted all, you know, high and mighty because they're English. And if you got in trouble with things, they would even take people over to England and try them in England instead of trying them here under our laws. All these things were causing friction. Also, the war was very expensive, the war against France and the the Indians. And so the British taxes were terrible and the British people were very upset. And so the British people thought the Americans should have to pay for their own war. So parliament gets together and decides they're gonna impose taxes against the United States. So here's the question, where did the English parliament get any authority whatsoever to impose taxes in the United States of America, where the people own their own land, they live in independent nation states, and they, they own their own land, they own the property pertinent land, they have the right to self-government, they've formed their own government. Where did the British get authority to start taxing? Hmm. They didn't have any. Great Britain has never had governmental authority on this continent, never not in the United States.
0: So, so it happened. was more or less a figment of their imagination because they didn't know their rights. They didn't know the law. Well, they had the most powerful military force in the world, but you're right. The, the yes. Americans, they didn't know that they were free. So they well, the Americans—no,
1: No, 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 no. The Americans knew they were free. That's why they were having the problems. That's why. That's why the people in America were standing up against the British. The British would impose a tax. They'd say, OK, we're going to do this stamp tax. And they'd send all these stamps to put on all the contracts. Now, to come over here, they take them off the ship. And, and as, as they're being offloaded, they get dumped into the ocean or they'd, they'd get loaded onto wagons and go out and get burnt or dumped into a river or they, they couldn't get the stamp tax going. So they imposed, imposed a, a sales tax and, and um, that didn't work. So they uh, had the Townsend Acts where they came in and changed the sales tax to just a few certain items and they reduced the taxes um, on most things and, and set the taxes. Anyway, um, the Townsend Acts and all that. But again, they had no authority to tax.
0: Right. I kind of look at it authority. today as we don't know what our rights are. So we allow things. And once they get a foothold in and they go okay well we, we got it down to this little thing but now we've convinced you that um, yeah. that you are part of the system now that little thing led actually to a controlling
1: right and so mentality when, and we're gonna come right back to that so we're looking at this revolutionary war for just a moment and then we then and that's going to connect right back you're right on track with that so what mm-hmm. happens is the people are having these problems with great britain now in a revolution. How does a revolution work? You have a governmental authority and then you have a people that are under the government and they rebel against that government. OK, Correct. so we come in the United States of America and Great Britain is trying to impose these taxes and other hard things. That the people in America are thinking of hardships. And so it's not a governmental authority. It has no government authority at all. OK, so then. When we look at the, the so-called rebellion, what happened there? Well, that was the day that the British came out of their base and went and attacked Lexington and Concord on April 19th. And who was the attacker? Was it the people rebelling against this so-called government? No. It was this interloping government trying to get a foothold that attacked the Americans. hmm so when they attacked, they attacked with about 3,000 troops, and the word went out. You know, we get the famous story of Paul Revere and, and the writers. Of course, Paul Revere was the lesser of the writers, but they go out. These writers go out from, from, you know, the one if by land, 2 by sea, and they, and, they, and they all go riding out. And they let the people know that the British are coming. So the people were all out there spreading the word. And all the men are grabbing their guns and they're grabbing their powder and they're grabbing their shot. And they're running up here to where the British are headed. And then the British attacked in Lexington and killed some people there. And then they moved up in Concord. And then they they started a real skirmish up there, a regular war skirmish up there. But by the time they'd done this, the people are starting to come out of the woodwork. And instead of sitting out in the field like the British do, just, you know, volleying for shot. The Americans are all hiding behind trees <laughs> and they come up and they open fire on the British and so all of a sudden the British are getting hit with all this gunfire and they get up and take off running they and and they're, and they're just they drop their weapons they drop everything they just took off running the British had sent back word to fort to the fort and General Gage had sent out another 3,000 troops and the three second 3,000 troops comes up to meet up to the first 3,000 troops and by this time, there's some 20,000 people, Americans, that have got them kind of keyholed into this spot, and they're getting shot at. And, and again, so they throw everything and run pell-mell back to the fort. Before they're done, they send another 3,000 troops at least up. There's at least 9,000 troops of the British involved in the battle. There were someplace between twenty and 40,000. Nobody knows how many uh, Americans they were involved. Uh, very few americans were wounded or injured or killed a lot of british were wounded injured and killed and they went back to the base and then we have the bunker hill battle which is attributed as a win for great britain but only because the americans ran out of ammo
0: mm.
1: so it's actually uh not bunker hill it was a hill by Bud, budge hill or something i forget what it is but anyway they had this battle And the um, hills above the fort, and so the British were fighting, but they lost many men. The the losses were incredible, and the Americans had like 30 injuries or something like that. And so with that, General Gage left Boston, and, and the British never went back to Boston during the war. So when we look at the situation and what actually happened, where was the revolution? there wasn't any. Not only did the Americans not revolt against the the British, it wasn't possible to revolt against the British. They had no governmental authority. So what was that war called? Well, the Americans called it the War of Independence. Mm -hmm. And we ended up with the Declaration of Independence as the declaration of, this is what's not going to happen. Now, it's really interesting when you go back and you read The provisional agreements for the Paris Treaty of Peace, because the British surrendered, but many nations were involved in the war. So though the British had surrendered to the Americans, the French and the British were still fighting. And the peace treaties were being held in Paris. Uh, The Paris Treaty of Peace was what it was written up as. And about a little over a year before the actual treaty was signed. The Americans and the British signed a set of provisional agreements with the nations that were there. And and the provisional agreements said that if nobody, if none of the parties in the war conquered any of the other parties before um, the provisional agreements of the Paris Treaty of Peace were delivered by Great Britain to the United States, that The um, relationship between Great Britain and the United States would revert back to the original contracts, which were all debt contracts. So, again, in the Declaration of Independence, they canceled all the debts. They said, that's it. We're not, you know, you're done. And after Great Britain surrendered, they wanted to keep the money path open. And so we had these provisional agreements. When Thomas Jefferson looked at the the provisional agreements, he said, um, hell no! I'll never sign those. He left. He as a pl- he's one of the potentaries who was uh, in charge of of that and was would have been a signer on that peace treaty. But he said he would go back to the Americas and fight the war until either we were dead or they were dead. But he would never sign that agreement. So Benjamin Franklin and John Jay and and the others that uh, John Adams came and and actually finished up the work on that. Thomas Jefferson went home and prepared, you know, he, he's ready to go back to war. But when we look at that provisional agreements, we say, okay, so when were those provisional agreements delivered to the United States State Department from Great Britain? Take a guess on that.
0: I don't even know. 1930s. 1930s? Wait a second.
1: Remember the Social Security Act in 1935? Yeah. That's a British act. The British wrote it and gave it to the United States as a solution for the problem that we were having with the condition, the economic condition in the United States. But we're, we're in the uh, Great Depression. And you have the Agricultural Acts and the Trading with the Enemies Act and all these things. The bank shut down and Mm -hmm. all these things that came into place to try to stop this thing from happening. And so um, the banks get put under the president, and uh, that was in 33. And then the provisional agreements um, get delivered in Great Britain, gives this suggestion of the Social Security Act. That's put in 1935. And so then we have this new change that's taken place. So we look back in, at the Great Depression and we see that the Great Depression was actually created on purpose and you see how it got created on purpose. And there's a lot of history tell, it. it's all in the book, Fake too. But when we, uh, you know, we look at this Revolutionary War, there was no Revolutionary War. It was the War of Independence. So how come we don't know that name anymore? The War of Independence. How come everybody thinks it's the Revolutionary War? Well, that came because the education system got changed. Mm-hmm. And the way that happened was um, Andrew Carnegie, wealthiest mm-hmm. man in the world. He's getting on in years and he's the wealthiest man in the world. He's taken the place over from uh, Rockefeller. Um, it's interesting that they ever called John D. Rockefeller as the wealthiest man in the world because uh, John D. Rockefeller was famous for being a pauper. Hmm. He never, he never I did not know that. He, he never had 10 cents of, of his own that was his money. He was a pauper. He managed businesses. And through that management and control, controlled more wealth than anyone else. But it was all done basically philanthropically.
0: (laughs) Right. I've actually had some interviews where we've talked about his influence on the medical system.
1: Oh, the medical system, yeah. You you have three major things that happened right about that same time. Uh, Andrew Carnegie formed the Carnegie Foundation. Mm -hmm. J.P. Morgan was instrumental in forming the Federal Reserve Bank. Of course, the Federal Reserve Bank is instrumental in creating the um, the Great Depression. And and Rockefeller was the wealthiest man in the world. And when he lost that position, um, he made a shift in that position because he had the control of oils. So he made a shift in that position, formed the AMA to change the medical solutions. To being um oil-based drugs right from natural remedies that people had been using and mm-hmm. so when when we see what that history was it's like okay number one um we still have the british talking about the american colonies as if the independent nation states 13 states were british colonies they never were not one of them not one of the original 13 states was a british colony They were all independent nation states, and as they joined in the Union of the United States of America, the initial attempt at uh, expanding that to the 13 states with the Articles of Confederation failed because they had this sovereign idea in mind. Now, sovereignty is made up of dominion, agency, and possession. If you have those three things, dominion, agency, and possession, you have sovereignty. Okay. So if we take a look, when they form the Articles of Confederation, at whether the states had dominion, agency, or possession, we find that for dominion, they didn't own the, the space, the people did. Okay, so they didn't have dominion. Agency, did they have the agency control over the space? No, the people did. Okay, possession. Did the states have possession of that domain? No, they didn't. It was all private property, okay? So the states couldn't possibly be sovereign because nobody ever gave the states land ownership. So we defined the boundaries of the state. We say, okay, this is going to be the state, but who owns the land within that state? The independent, sovereign people, the landowners own that. And we look at the people. Did they have dominion? Yes. Did they have agency? Yes. Did they have possession? Yes. They're sovereign.
0: Right. So, this whole idea of property tax is actually legal.
1: No, it's not. Because, oh. again, um, when we go back to the, the, the problem that they had, as the nation is growing and it's mm-hmm. becoming the most powerful nation in the world, and unlike any other nation before, it's not a sovereign nation, it's a nation of sovereigns. Correct. Okay.
0: It gives them the right to tax the landowners is what uh, I'm asking.
1: Well, of course, but to ask that question, you have to understand several things. One, what land is, what property is, and what's being taxed. And two, the issue you were asking about, the right to do this. So the problem that people in governance have Now, Great Britain, again, is trying to to use this land as a source for abundance. Right. Because they got this little island, so they're going to get their wealth from someplace else. Their their island just does not have the capacity to maintain that kingdom. Mm -hmm. Okay. So so what happens is they're reaching out to other sources. So after the War of Independence, Great Britain is kicked out. Okay. Mm -hmm. But... At the end of the war, as is the case in the end of most wars, the cost of war is so high that there's no more money. So the government doesn't have any money. The people don't have any money. They're just everybody's bereft of money. So how are they going to get money to rebuild the nation? See, so they're going to do this by banking. So they create this thing called the United States Bank. Of course, there is no constitutional authority to do this it's just it was this, this is a, a you call it a pipe dream of hamilton's um he gets this thing going and then uh, it's like a year after they get this thing started they they, they create the the mint <laughs> so they can make money <laughs> so but with this this new bank the bank of the united states they're selling interest in shares in it and the buyers of most of the interest in shares are great britain oh so the money that comes into the United States Bank as they fabricate a fiat currency by contract to buy, sell, and trade, mm-hmm. the profits that come from that buying, selling, and trading with fiat currency, well, it's not even fiat currency. They're using contracts even without the currency. And, and as, as the contracts are generating money, the bank is making money and it's paying large dividends out to its stockholders which are mostly Great Britain. So as the bank is growing, Great Britain has still got the money coming in. So now uh, Thomas Jefferson is adamant against this bank and he fights and fights and fights and finally gets rid of it. And then uh, other events cause them to need to, well, the war of 1812. So they get rid of the bank. So what happens when they get rid of the bank? Well, Great Britain doesn't have the money coming in again. So they attack. War of 1812. They attacked the United States four times in the War of 1812. They attacked it from the Canadian side, from the North and the Atlantic, uh, going up the Potomac, and then coming down around up through New Orleans. And each time they were routed. And so finally, they gave up. But because of the cost of all of that, the United States borrowed a bunch of money from Napoleon, They uh, $11 million. They... Uh, Formed the bank again, the United States bank again. This is bank two. Bank two. Mm-hmm. U.S. bank number two. So in U.S. bank number two, it's coming up for renewal. These, these charters for the bank were 20-year charters. So it's 20-year charter period is coming up. But um, Andrew Jackson is president. And Andrew Jackson, like Thomas Jefferson, is adamant against this bank. It's just just wrong. It's unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. So in his second term of office, um, the politicians decided that if they renewed the bank charter that year while he's running for office, he wouldn't contest it because he wouldn't want that to be a major issue in the battle for president. Well, they were wrong. He fought them. And when they passed this rechartering of the bank, four years before the charter was up, it gave Andrew Jackson the opportunity to write this veto message. Andrew Jackson's veto message for that charter, that rechartering of the bank, is one of the most important documents ever written um, by a president. And in it, it shows that law is not made by Congress or by the courts. Law is made when the people acquiesce to the rulings of the courts and the dictates of Congress, when the people acquiesce. Problem is the people don't know the law. So what happens is all this time in these early days of the country, our country is growing, it's getting more powerful, it's becoming the most powerful nation in the world and the wealthiest people in the world see it, they see it happening. So here's Andrew Carnegie now. He's the wealthiest guy in the world. It's uh, 1906, and he forms this thing that finally formed in in 1908 called the Carnegie Foundation. Mm -hmm. In their first meeting, they announced what the purpose of that foundation was, and its purpose was to create a um, collectivist society, important word, collectivist. They wanted to create a collectivist society that the people could volunteer into and give control over themselves and the economy to this society. So they asked a question. We're going to do this. Is there any way better than war to change the mindset of a great people? Because the mindset of the American people is liberty and freedom and uh, land rights and property rights and And the American dream and all this. And and so what happens is they're going to, they want to create this society. What is a society? Well, a collectivist society and a corporation, if that was a government, would be called communism. Collectivism is communism. Okay. Mm -hmm. So when you collect, when, when you look, okay, fascism is where government controls business. Communism is where government controls business and private property. Okay. So in collectivism, you take the control of the businesses and the private property, and you give it over to this organization. See, the Carnegie Foundation, this is what they want to do. They want to create this collective society that the people will volunteer for. So now we take a look at the Social Security cardholder system. (laughs) And how do you get involved with this system? You volunteer. Every, Every Social Security cardholder that exists has a volunteer trustee every single one of them and every single one of them are United States government agency trusts. So when the people volunteer to do everything in commerce through that card holder, and initially it wasn't that way. They just had this card and, you know, they went out and they made these, they said, we're going to do the social security system. Uh, Some companies getting right behind the whole thing would um, you'd come to work and they'd had a meeting is fill out this paperwork. And if you fill out this paperwork, you can go to work. And if you don't fill out the paperwork, there's the door. The law didn't say that. To this very day, there is no mandate that anyone has to have a Social Security card. And in fact, no one does. So what we see when we realize what's actually happened, we see this cardholder relationship that was created, the idealized relationship what it was going to be when when carnegie put that thing in place in 1908 is not likely the car door because that came from great britain see that was a solution to a problem that was created by the federal reserve bank now that's another thing on the federal reserve bank (laughs) okay we hear people talking about how the federal reserve um, notes used to be backed by gold and silver And then he took us off the gold standard in 65 or whatever it was. okay. people talk about that all the time. What's that? Was that 71? 71, I believe. 71. Yeah, Yeah, there was some movement towards it in 65 and done in 71. Mm -hmm. But what was it that was done? Well, people don't really know. They just hear that. And then they talk about that. But they don't really know what happened with that. So we go back and look at the Federal Reserve Bank on day one. Okay, the day one. This, this organization was created at J.P. Morgan's Resort on J.P. Morgan's Island, Chekel Island. It's offshore, it's private owned, and he invites these bankers from all over to come down to this island.
0: Mm-hmm. That's beautiful, a-
1: by the way. I've been oh, there. Oh, yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. And yeah, I've uh, walked across from Georgia to the island. Of course, yeah. it's all Georgia now, because they've adopted the island as part of Georgia, and it's now a it's now a national park. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, it's it's nice little uh, almost tropical island that sits close enough to the United States coast that low tide, you can walk across it and not get your waist wet. <laughs> right, right. It, it, you get your knees wet, but you won't get your waist wet. And so, yeah, I've, I've done that. And uh,
0: But yes, they do boast that in 1913, as part of the history, when you take a historical tour through the island that they birthed the Federal Reserve System right there. And they talk about all of these barons that came down world powers of its time to come together to birth as if this was a good and noble thing Mm -hmm. because the people don't know better. They don't know that they basically uh, birthed slavery into the country through that system.
1: When you talk about a corporation beginning that's the birth. And so anytime you have the beginning of a business entity, that's it's, it's being born. And that's, that's what it's actually called. And uh, so when people are talking about fictitious business entities, no, uh, people don't get that right. There's actually a, uh, if you want to act as if you were a business yourself through a business name, then you go down to the newspaper and you record a fictitious business name filing. And then you record that when you take that record from that published newspaper, you can go to the bank and open up a bank account in the name of that fictitious business name. That's a fictitious business because it's actually you doing business as mm-hmm. But when you're looking at that cardholder. That's not a fictitious business. That's a trust. Say <laughs> that's a business entity. When you, when you do the fictitious business name thing, that's a fictitious business name. And it's, it's a fictitious business. It's not really a business. It's just you acting through an alias. But when you're looking at a co- trust, a corporation, a partnership, um, LLC, they've got all these different di- uh, marketing term now. Basically, there's three forms of businesses, uh, corporations, trusts, and partnerships. And of those, corporations are new. They're, they're creatures of the state. But partnerships and trusts have been around since as long as the Bible's been around, and and way before that. So they're they're ancient, ancient, ancient things. Now they operate. It's it's just very powerful stuff when you start learning how to work, to, to manage and operate businesses and business controls. As a matter of fact, if you do a careful read when you're reading the scriptures, we're actually instructed to be fruitful and multiply, replenish and subdue the earth through businesses because we're warned not to take our inheritance before it's given to us and that that inheritance won't be given to us until after this life. So so if you put that all together, you need to set up businesses. And then you go down and you look at Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and you see what they did. And they had all these different businesses. They had the wells and the fields and the flocks and the herds and all these different businesses that they did in their operation of businesses. And they had inner relations, and you look at those inner relations and you see trusts and you see partnerships. It has, it has always been done. And when you go back to guys like Abraham, they recognize that all of the stuff they were trading with belonged to God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they were stewards over these businesses that were formed to build up God's kingdom. And that's the way they looked at it. And today, again, we've forgotten who we are, so we've forgotten that process. <laughs>
0: Thank you again for tuning in to The Soul Connection. We can be found at soulconnectionusa.com with our developing community. Please join us again every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until our next show, find new ways this week and every week to make your own soul connections.